Hello, and welcome to Shape the System, where we find and tell the stories that help people to rethink the way the world works. We interview people from all over the world who are helping to change our systems for the better. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures, who help ambitious founders and their teams scale up for success. More about KPMG High Growth Ventures after the interview. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. We're here today with Tony Hale of Scroll. Um, great to have you on the show, Tony. And um, just want to, let's just dive straight in or let's understand Scroll. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this. Sure. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Scroll uh, is a company that's trying to envision what the internet could look like if ads had never existed. Like, what would the experience be like for people? But also, how would sites survive? How would the sites, right. especially the, the ones that are uh, that are closest to my heart, are the ones that are responsible for the journalism that supports our democracy? How do you find kind of a right. model where they can live? And so, Scroll does a couple of simple things. You sign up as a member, and whenever you go to any of the sites within the network, no matter how you're doing it, you could be in Twitter, in the Twitter app, or wherever else, you get a fast, clean, ad-free, private experience on that page. There's no dodgy links at the bottom telling you about like baldness cures. There's no pre-roll videos right. getting in the way. None of that stuff. You just get the right. web you, you've always wanted. And at the same time, we take the membership um, subscription that uh, members pay and we distribute that to the sites uh, in a way where they make more money than they would have made from advertising. So the sites win and Got the it. members win. Got it. And then look, and like, let's come back a step with this. So we've we've ended up in a world where advertising is the predominant, like vastly predominant model for uh, how publications, you know, transition from print to, to like, how, how do we end up here? So it's always inertia and the closest, easiest thing. Yeah, like... If we think about uh, pretty much everything in advertising, it's always taking something from some other place and trying to apply it. Like when, uh, do you know the very first ad that appeared on the internet? <laughs> this was it was on uh, Hotwire.com, which was the digital version of Wired magazine, uh, and it was right. a, a banner ad for AT and T, and it was all black with tie dye letters in all caps. It said. Have you ever clicked, have you ever clicked here before with a little arrow saying you will? That was the that was the like advertising <laughs> Adam of digital advertising, uh, and they had no idea how to measure this thing. And what you had was that right. you had two guys, one of whom came from magazines, and magazines were like, "Well, we do things on impressions on like on a CPM basis, so we're going to throw impressions in right. there." And the other guy came from uh, his previous job had been teaching realtors how to do direct mail campaigns through like through right. traditional mail, and he was like, "No, no, no! Like it's response rate." So that's how you got with advertising the metrics that defined all of advertising. It was this inertia that gave us kind of impression impressions and click through rate. Right. So with all of digital right. advertising, we've just seen this kind of this kind of like natural. Whatever's easiest, let's let's throw that in, and it worked for a really long time until other right. people started doing it better than the publishers could themselves. Right, and then in, in terms of what you're talking about, there are like the ad networks and things like that. So the ad net, 
a lot of these uh, in in the advertising world, a lot of these things have come across, and originally they've been seen as actually an advantage for uh, independent sites. Uh, ad networks are one of those right. things. They enabled a bunch of small sites to still make advertising revenue. They were actually helpful. Programmatic, when we first looked at that, was also something which we thought was going to be an advantage for sites, uh, as it would like make more efficient. Uh, Advertising buys, it would remove some of, some of the ad sales people, all this kind of thing that we thought would be better. But all of this right. technological advance and this, this aggregation of demand and so forth led to a place where you have now a few big players, Facebook, Google, etc., who control the vast majority of digital advertising spend because they have more precise right. targeting, they have greater scale, and actually largely better performance on their advertising. And so what you have right. is you have these two plus players who have taken over the advertising space, dominated it. Uh, and now you have a bunch of sites who are hugely important to how we live our life. And right now in the midst of this coronavirus, it's only more true, but for whom right. the system that they developed to pay for themselves no longer really works. Right. And, and look, and, and I think, I, mean, I, I remember reading a stat uh, last year about 99% of new advertising spend was spent with either Facebook or Google. Uh, and a lot of their model relies on engaging someone not on the, the source of truth and then effectively being able to monetize that engagement at a whoever bids highest, which, you know, is great from an advertiser perspective, challenging from a brand perspective. That's probably a whole separate podcast. And then, the ultimate source of that content is is kind of at the tail end of that process, and so is it such that we've that we're you know that we've created engagement somewhere which is highly valuable, but we've effectively devalued um, the nature of how that engagement has come about by these publishers? Is that sort of the crux of this? No, I think I think in some ways it's we we can like go down rabbit holes with this if you think right. about it purely from the perspective of an advertiser who just wants to find the kind of the best ROI for their ad spend right now. If you, if you go, if you want to try and find and put your advertising in front of a hundred million people and you want to do so through kind of traditional sites, you have to go through a media agency that has a planning uh, system that has to find this archipelago of, invent- of inventory to put it all together. Right. You're going to have different systems of targeting across all of these things, which possibly don't always align as to the exact audience. You're going to have data coming back to you that may that might not be as precise, and it's and it's a lot of work and effort uh, and all these disparate prices. That can also right. be done on a single platform like Facebook or Google, not quite with a phone call, but where you have like one system, one source of scale, one source of all this other kind of stuff. Even just the cost of running it sure. uh, become less. So it's it's hugely tempting for an advertiser just to kind of go with the easiest option, and no one's getting fired for saying we put sixty percent of our of our budget into search and social. Like that's not. <laughs> uh, happening right now right. In, in, in just a simple right. way it's becoming harder and harder to spend money with sites that do not have scale and right now like you could even argue that Yahoo doesn't have scale one of the reasons why they merged with AOL was to get more scale and even then 
you can right. argue that they're not at the level of scale that you really want. There's only a very few scale players out there. Understood. And then, so bringing this back to sort of where, you know, how scrollers are reimagining this, your, your, your thought is, what if we took that whole paradigm away and said to an individual, look, there's a whole bunch of really interesting stuff out there. And yes, you, you, you're going to have to go to multiple places. That's the nature of the internet. Um, but you sort of play two roles in this. You sort of play a role of, uh, enabling a different business model to thrive for, you know, people who are at the behest of advertising networks in terms of publishers, um, but also playing the role of being able to say to an individual, hey, we can help you aggregate across a bunch of sites, which will provide a meaningful and, and kind of high utility of, of experience to you. Is that sort of where you've, how you sort of see the world working in, in the scroll? We kind of started in many ways with the user because it was only really that user's kind of frustration that we saw that kind of enabled us to think about what other business models might work. If you don't have that, if you don't have that as right. a starting point, then you can't really go anywhere. And one of the things that we'd seen was that as advertising tried to optimize itself uh, towards greater and greater performance, you saw a few things start to happen. One was that you saw kind of more and more privacy implications with people's data being shared across multiple different services. Right. They'd be like, why are you retargeting me with this, with these shoes? All of that kind of stuff started to happen. And ad formats right. tended to get bigger, more interruptive. We moved towards video, often audio, like audio default on video, things that would pop out in the middle of the page and like disrupt your. So in general, the experience of advertising was becoming more and more intrusive and more right. and creating more friction. And so we saw that uh, you sure. saw the rise of ad blocking and all these kinds of other things. So you, on the one side, you had this clear user problem. Users wanted right. a different kind of internet than the one they were getting, one that was faster, cleaner, mm -hmm. and a better user experience. And on the other side, sure. you had the business model that underlied the current way in which that web was working that was breaking for the sites that were most important. And so when right. we thought about Scroll, we said, why don't we stop treating these two problems as separate? Why don't we try and treat them as right. one problem and reimagine from the ground up what a truly better internet would look like? If ads had never existed, what would you have to do? You'd have to have a focus purely That's on user fine. experience because you're now getting your money directly from consumers versus indirectly from advertisers. So user experience becomes mm -hmm. utterly paramount and you have to have a completely frictionless way that doesn't ask people to change their behavior. They don't have to go into an app um, to use your service. They just, they just work the way the web does. But wherever they go, they get the right. experience and the site gets paid. And that was very much how we came up. Right. Got it. And, and, and I think, you know, I remember seeing, um, again, you know, I've got a limited view of this, but some, in the, some metrics stuck out for me a couple of years ago, uh, there was some statistic, I think it was in the US that said, uh, 24 out of 25, um, publications were obviously previously print, but now, are um, digital were losing money going backwards. Um, and they were all effectively operating as, uh, ad sponsored, you know, websites. I mean, the easiest sort of way I can break it down. And I think in the last few years, especially, I mean, here in Australia, there's a couple that are now, I think 60% of their revenue is coming from, you know, paywall subscription. And that, you know, that might work for a, a New York Times or an Australian, but you obviously have a, a challenge there that, you know, there's only going to be a certain number of people who are willing to put the, you know, $10 a month or five bucks a month, whatever it is, 
for one of those publications, and they're not going to they're not going to see themselves, you know, doing that across multiple. And so there's there's a few things I think to unpack in here, which is a subscription model is is a is a powerful model, and clearly is starting to work with some of the bigger, more well known publications in in various parts of the world. So there's you know that seems like a, a good template, um, but also people at, a, at an individual level will benefit from having um, high quality journalism, you know, for want of a better word, and you know, insight across the multiple places, um, but are probably unlikely to pay for that in that order of magnitude across multiple places. How 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 is that kind of emergence of subscription sort of affected your thinking and how are you leveraging that, I guess? For sure. So it was actually one of the kind of most interesting things that we looked at, which was as we were, if we envisioned a world where uh, there was no advertising. You you have this very clear model, as you say, kind of like really pioneered by the New York Times uh, and a few others. Right. The, the FT in the UK, for example, who's been great on this, where they quite simply ask people to pay for access. Um, there are other people who right. uh, ask people to pay for brand affinity, people like The Guardian, uh, who have a membership model, but don't mm-hmm. uh, gate any content uh, around that, although that is much, right. much rarer in this context. So what you tend to find, as you, as you said to them, is that for a subscription like, like that to work, you have to have enormous brand affinity for a particular site. In general, like even now, I think if you look at the New York Times, which has been the most successful uh, one of this, I think they're, they've got about three and a half percent of their audience is actually a subscriber. So the vast, vast majority right. of the audience of the New York Times is not yet a subscriber to that, despite a fairly hefty paywall and all kinds of other things. It tends to be something of a super fan behavior. And if you don't have that brand affinity right. for a particular site, you're just not going to pay. What was very interesting to me was if you didn't try to match the economics of, a, of an access subscription, which tends to be like 10 bucks, 15 bucks a month, if you merely tried to replace... Right advertising revenue, which for a user, uh, an average user, may be 16 cents a month or 8 cents a month in that in that context. And if you look at the ca- a more casual experience, which is, I don't know which site I'm going to go to. I'm coming from Twitter. I'm clicking on a link. I don't even necessarily know what site I'm going to, but I know the experience mm-hmm. that I want when I get there. Yeah, I don't want to be frustrated by this thing. I want to be able to read what I want to see or see the video that I want to see. And then I want to be able to get out and carry on with my day. In that context, there was this whole other opportunity for us to apply subscription mechanics to add economics uh, and focus Mm. on experience rather than access. And so that's what we've been able to do with Scroll. So it kind of nicely sits as a complement to uh, some of the bigger kind of subscription services like the New York Times, where you can almost think of the casual fans, the people who are like browsing around a bunch of different stuff and who want that better experience. Scroll is perfect for them. It's cheap. Uh, Right now, we've got 50% off, so it's just 2 bucks 49 a month. Uh, and they get that great experience. And then as a result, if they start reading more of this content and they want to subscribe and get past the paywall on a particular site, then they can do so. They've become that kind of super fan. It's a nice way of kind of segmenting different groups. Understood. And so it it basically means that it, it, you're you're almost saying to the, to the publisher, look, you can get your ad revenue. You can just get it in in a way that is far more conducive to the user experience, which we think long-term will lead you to hire engaged users who will ultimately, um, you know, upgrade if you like to, you know, a, a paid version of your services. Is that part of the promise to the 
to the publisher as well, or is it, or is it, get, is it getting them to buy into you know, the bigger thing? what the data suggests. So there's a few things right. that, that we know, which is the faster you make your site, the cleaner you make your site, the more engaging you make your site, the more people read. And the more people read, the more they develop right. brand affinity for your site, and the more likely they are to subscribe. And so what Scroll right. does kind of inadvertently almost is by providing this different experience uh, for its members, it allows them to have the kind of experience that builds brand affinity. And so one of the things that we've been seeing since launch, and we only launched in January, so it's still early days, and we don't have statistically significant data yet, but what we're seeing already is an increased propensity for scroll members to now want to subscribe to sites within the network because they just trust them more. They trust them more. They start reading more content on them because they know, you know what? I know when I go to this site, I'm going to get a good experience. And that builds that trust Mm. and affinity that can lead to a subscription later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And look, um, I mean, it's fascinating. I, I, I didn't know you'd only just launched in in january that was um that was unknown to me so that's that's fascinating that you're seeing that already like only you know a four month in um i guess you you know getting away from ad networks is great but you also still get the ability to understand you know viewers and what they're doing and understanding what what's working and continue to refine that customer experience to drive the outcome which is what you want is for people to spend more time you know reading high quality news and whatever their version of high quality is whatever resonates for them i want to talk a little bit about about that, about, you know, you said right up front, part of this, this, this mission here, this purpose is around um, supporting high quality independent um, journalism. Let, 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 let's understand that a bit more. So, I mean, for me, it's, I find it very, very difficult to work on something which doesn't have some kind of higher purpose. And I'm also right. very aware that my skill set is largely this British accent and a certain affinity with jazz. <laughs> um, so, I can't solve climate change. I, I don't have the science background for that. I can't do a whole bunch of things. So if I'm looking at the kind of the order of most important things, one of the things that is kind of under threat right now is the notion of a fourth estate, a thriving free press that is able to hold government account uh, to account and able to kind of really act as the people's watchdog and voice. And so that for me, this, this was the place where I thought I could make an impact. And I mean, I love to read. I love, I love great journalism as well. But so that, that for me was, was the thing. It's like, if you're going to spend your time doing something, have it, uh, be something that fits your limited skill set in my case. And also like has meaning and purpose beyond just the accumulation of money. And so that's what, that's what right, brought me right. And then, but in, in so far as like, I, I look at a lot of the publications that, uh, are available through scroll at the moment and you know they they appear to me to be ones who are sort of at least in their brand are, are not so uh, advertising driven they're not so kind of tabloid and i'm using crass words and i don't maybe understand the space well enough but it feels like part of this is actually about giving those voices and those labels an ability to survive and prosper you know you know on the internet and in in the world generally what's what's what do we what do you see as as being the uh, outcome of being an, an able, helping them to, to live that way or to, to survive or whatever or thrive, whatever the right word is. Well, I, I, it's a kind of very interesting time to have this conversation because what we've seen over the last 
two months is the utter collapse of uh, these people's revenue, these publishers' revenue. You're seeing 30 to 40% declines in the ad revenue that they were making beforehand as a result of coronavirus, the kind of economic effects of that. So certainly we feel very much that we have to kind of step up and try and help drive these new paths. But if we would like to take it out, like see out into the future and imagine a world in which Scroll is really kind of contributing in a significant way towards these sites being able to be thriving, great bastions of journalism, then one of the kind of impacts of that is these sites can now focus so clearly on how do we make the best possible experience for the user. They've always had two masters. They've always, uh, it's always been a case with advertising, whether even with the best possible sites where our job has been to entice people to try and read content and then make money by distracting them from that content. That has always <laughs> been the kind of core challenge the of, uh, sure. of this business model. And so being able to change that so there is only one person that they have to serve, and that's the person coming to the right. site right now, and they know that the better they serve that user, the more money they make, like that's the kind of web that you want to see. That's the web that I want to see anyway. And so that's what we're driving towards. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I love it. I mean, I, I, I think there's clearly, you know, so often the the business model that we have, as you, you know, is a is a default from the business model we used to have in an, in a world that operated differently, in in a world where, you know, you can effectively get access to every website in the world, other than the paywall. Um, how how should that model work? I think is is the right question to be asking. You know, love love that you guys are tackling it. Do, do you think you know long term as well? If these companies have there's a, a surety that they you know know regardless of what the economic climate's doing to use your reference to a current climate, they have the surety that they're going to you know um, be sustainable. That they can also, I guess, be more ambitious potentially in what they're doing or or or, or cover topics or or go deeper into things or, or, or is it, I think, I guess I'm asking, is their ability to, to be, to live up to their journalistic ideals and integrity um, potentially amplified as well? So I, I, I should start by saying that there's currently amazing work being done and like all of the sites that we work with have incredible journalistic integrity uh, on all this kind of stuff. There's, there's nothing I could do there to, to make them follow that more because they're already doing that. One of the things though right. that, we do now is that there's one of the challenges with an advertising model is that there is some content that you can advertise against and some content, which is harder to advertise against. Like if you have a real estate section, there is no problem at all getting people to advertise against that. Same with fashion, same with all of these kind of things. It's really, really hard to get advertisers who want to advertise next to the civil war in Syria or content about the war, <laughs> or, or right. like, right. you know, the, the cruise ship that has the outbreak of diarrhea. Like, no one wants their ad next right. to that. Um, and so right. sometimes it can be harder to make the economic case for great content that is about important stuff, mm. but itself doesn't have uh, the same kind of advertising-based rationale. One of the things that happens with a model like Scroll is it kind of levels the playing field. The only thing that matters is what is it that the users want. And in that context, it means that you can write an amazing piece about uh, the civil war in Syria, and it can be your most lucrative story. That doesn't happen in advertising. 
Interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, super, super fascinating. And so look, just coming back a step, like um, just before we jumped on the show, you were telling me about how you were sailing around the world. Um, how did you, how did you, <laughs> how did you get here? What's your background? Um, it's kind of a weird journey. Um, so I, as I told you before, I, so I left university and it felt like everyone was going to be a, a lawyer or an accountant or something like that. And sure. I didn't think I'd be very good at either of those things. And so I was lucky enough to be able to get a position as a bowman on a round the world yacht race, which meant I got to stand at the pointy end and uh, get beaten up a lot by big waves uh, as we sailed the wrong way right. around the world for months. So I kind of competed in that and it really kind of transformed my life in a, in a thousand different ways where I felt I knew much more about myself. I'd been tested much, much more um, by that than, I, than by anything else in my entire life. And so I kind of had the bargain after, after I, came, I came back from that and I spent a few years doing kind of weird kind of anti-terrorism stuff. Uh, I ended up in polar expeditions uh, and leading polar okay. expeditions, which is why my Twitter username is Arctic Tony still. Um, so right. <laughs> I was leading and managing other people's polar expeditions and spending lots of time up in the high Arctic and, and having a grand old time. And I was in New York on a, on a tourist visa looking for money for an expedition when a friend of a friend uh, who knew I was kind of a closet geek sent me a business pl- uh, plan for a startup. And it was possibly the, I hadn't read many business plans before. In fact, any business plans before, but this was the worst business plan that I'd ever read. Uh, <laughs> I was between expeditions. So I kind of like wrote a whole bunch of notes and said like, here's some interesting things that you could be doing instead. And I thought it was just going right. to this, this friend. And instead it got passed around a bunch of people. And they said, well, if you think you're so smart, you want to come help run this thing. And that was my first yeah, startup. Sure. Which, which didn't actually work out at all. But then uh, my second startup, I got very lucky. I got to team up with some amazing people, a creative uh, genius called Billy Chasen and a few others. And we created a company called Chartbeat. Yep. Went on to become the analytics service that's used by, I think, 80% of the media companies in the US and in 66 countries around the world. Mm-hmm. So I, I ran that for some yep. seven years before getting the itch to, to start something new. And I couldn't stop thinking about this idea. So I, uh, I right. put it past two very good friends of mine who I knew were smarter than me. Uh, and they said, that's the wrong idea. You should try tweaking it and doing this instead. I'm right. probably going to steal that, but I can't tr- truly steal it unless you guys come along to, to tell me what to do. So I have my, with my two co-founders, Sachin Doshi and Kushal Dave, we founded Scroll and, uh, yeah. and here we are. Yeah. Amazing. And, and, and I mean, you talked a little bit before about getting on a boat and that, uh, having some, you know, a whole range of impacts. Um, and you, you said, you know, about the middle of when we started talking, you know, that you were, this idea that your purpose you, know, you wouldn't be, you didn't want to do something unless there was purpose in that. Where, where's that coming from for you? Is that coming from that sailing experience or something that happened elsewhere? Like how have you arrived mentally to think I can do whatever I want? This is why I choose to do something that I think matters. I, actually, as I'm speaking to Australian, I think I can be candid and I'm saying I'm, I can actually blame it all on Sydney. Oh, good. <laughs> so uh, when you walk around, when you walk around Darling Harbour, uh, there are a bunch of different plaques mm. in the uh, in the ground, like bronzes of various quotes about Australia, oh. or from people who visited Australia uh, and written about it. And I deeply remember the first time I was walking around that, and I saw this uh, this brass plaque of this of these words from Jack London, 
who said, I would rather be ashes than dust, a spark burnt out in a brilliant flame rather than left moldering in dry, in dry rot. Man's chief purpose is to live, not to, ex- not to exist. I shall not waste my days trying to prolong them. I shall use my time. And that Amazing. <laughs> clearly stuck with me. That, that black in the, in the ground in Sydney, around Sydney Harbour stuck with me. And from that moment, I was like, yes, I would rather be ashes than dust. And for me, if you, the only thing that matters is kind of like, does the world, is the world better for you having lived in it uh, than right. if you never existed? And that's not Amazing. about the kind of house you have. It's not about the car you drive. It's literally about like, what did you do to make the world a little bit better? And so for me, ah, I love it. always trying to seek out that particular approach. Uh, I'm, I probably yeah. fail 99% of the time. That is that oh, is the right. animating factor. Oh, that's, I love. I mean, <laughs> I love that you actually know that quote verbatim. Clearly, you, you, it obviously had a, a massive impact, um, uh, which is sensational. Um, yeah, so good. I, I'm gonna have to go and find that black. By the way, I'm not. I, I know the part of the city that you're talking about, but I'm gonna gonna have to go for like a you know a scavenger hunt to try and find it somewhere. I'm sure. I'm sure Google will be able to help. Um, you talked a little bit before with that. That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. I'll take a photo and we'll see if we can get it onto the to the post for the interview as well. Uh, the thing I was going to say is, well, like, and you've you've chosen, you know, this this problem, and it's obviously you've come across a set of insights and knowledge in the chartbeat days that has given you some insight to, hey, there's a real opportunity here to do this thing differently and think differently. And so there's a confluence of events that have led you to this point. But as someone who's you know living a life of purpose, if you like. Like, what are the other things that you look at and go, look, I'm not working on this problem, but I, you know, I love this, you know, space and I admire these people who are, who are working on these problems. Like, what are the other first order problems you think about? Oh, so many. Um, obviously, kind of climate change is a big animating factor. I mean, it's like rethinking everything about how we, we work. I mean, if, if you take what I'm working on right now, which is this, this problem of a single industry having to, which is kind of become, in some ways, the way that it survives and thrives has become, in some ways, toxic or threatening to its existence. Its reliance on these forms right. of sustenance has become toxic to its existence. Then climate change is that, but for everything. And so right. I get super excited about people working on these kind of projects as they go, and especially even things that are kind of not just necessarily technological, like. Uh, there's super interesting right. uh, studies that have been done around how well uh, organic agricultural soil can sequester carbon. Uh, because right. I'm, 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 I'll get the wording wrong, but things like that, like how do you create the systems that allow for, for that to happen where you can sequester more carbon in ways that are kind of good for farming, farming as well? So how do you create these kind of win-win systems there? But I have to say that like if I was going to... Um, if there, if there was one thing that would, like, if I totally screwed up the startup game, uh, <laughs> and, and this is a, this is a small thing and it's kind of silly, I guess, but the things that give me the most bizarre joy in the world is when you, there there's been some, like 
technical advances around like cochlear implants, around being helping uh, people who are colorblind to be able to see color again. And there is nothing more wonderful for reshaping and making you thankful for your world than seeing someone experience color for the first time or hearing the voice of a loved one. And so even like there's the big expansive, let's solve climate change kind of things that come up. But then there's the, the smaller things of like, could I help someone hear a loved one's voice for the first time? And how magical would that be for that to be something you're working on? So for me, it kind of runs the gamut. Yeah. That's that's amazing. In in fact, I was actually, um, I was in hospital uh, with our 18 month old about three weeks ago, the, you know, room adjacent to us, there was a, I guess a, a child who would have been six months old who had just had the operation to put the cochlear implants in and her parents were obviously, you know, there with these, she's got these less, large scars behind her ears. And in two weeks' time when that's healed, they get the opportunity to turn that on and for her to hear their voices for the first time. I'm like, I can't even imagine how that would yeah. feel to see that and to experience that as a parent. So I totally, <laughs> I guess I can empathize and totally understand with that. Um, yeah. Just just one last question for me. Um, how how do you, how, like in a world where there is so much to be done, what's your kind of go-to? How do you, you know, stay sane? Are you still out on the boat trying to get around the world or is there is there more introspection happening? What's, what's your go-to? I read a lot. Right. It's, been, it's been bizarre that I have turned more to like philosophy and things a little bit like Zen over the last few years, just as a way of coping with the stress uh, in terms of startup. Like, sure. It's good to always kind of center your perspective on that. And when that doesn't work, I do love swinging a heavy kettlebell around, which also seems to do the job. <laughs> Doing like a CrossFit kind of thing. Uh, not quite CrossFit. It's you, you got this. Is, it all gets very culty in this world. So I'm I'm more pure kettlebell than, than CrossFit. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, when I when I need to just focus on something. There's nothing like having a large, unstable weight uh, perched precariously above your head <laughs> to make you forget about marketing acquisition numbers. I love it. There's a there's a metaphor in there somewhere, so that's awesome. Um, Tony, that was that was great. It was it was really lovely talking to you today. I'm I'm, I'm fascinated to hear everything you guys are doing. Um, I think you guys are, are are onto something amazing. I think the what you potentially unlock beyond simply sustaining these things. You know, there's a multiplier effect, and yeah, I wish you all the best. And thank you again for being on the show. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Shape the System. As usual, if you'd like to suggest a guest, someone that you know who's helped change the system for the better, please go to www.shapethesystem.org, click on the top right-hand corner, then click Suggest Guest. Make sure that you click Subscribe so that you get the new episode. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures. Connects founders to the services they need along their journey. Whether you are looking to refine your strategy, mature your finance function, prepare for a capital raise, expand abroad, or simply comply with regulatory requirements, they provide you with the support you need to drive your business forward.